This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, so I am very excited about this week's guest. There's a little bit of a backstory. Um, You're going to hear this interview in two parts. This first part, for those of you who are either listening on Apple iTunes or at Bloomberg.com, is about an hour. Part two will be posted next week, or if you're listening to this at some point in the future, uh, half an inch down. Um, This is really a fascinating interview with a fascinating character. Uh, A little backstory to how this interview came about. And I'm going to make a really long story, not as short as uh, some people would like, but it's really interesting. And I like sharing this behind the scenes stuff with, with listeners. So... Gross gets fired from PIMCO, or there's certainly a palace coup back in September of 2014. And lots of people are writing about it, and lots of people are piling on. You know, there was a whisper campaign to discredit him. Ever since Mohammed Alarian left PIMCO, there was a little bit of a uh, sort of change in the air, and I think people got a little more bold. Some of the people who were the next tier below Gross and Alarian uh, began plotting to essentially depose the king, and uh, effectively that's what what happened. But around that time, September 26th, early October, lots of stories came out. Everybody piled on, and uh, you know, people sometimes say, "Hey, why don't you write about Bill Gross?" And my answer was, "I'm not interested. I have nothing to add." I think people are just ignoring a guy with a 40-year track record. Look, uh, he built a firm that, and he, I say this specifically, even though he gives credit to other people who worked with him and that it was a team effort and there were thousands of people who work at PIMCO, uh, the reality is the vast majority of the $2 trillion, let me repeat that, $2 trillion that PIMCO raised over 40 years came there because of gross. End of story. And so I didn't want to pile on. We don't have any PIMCO funds. We're not a client of theirs. I just look at them and say, uh, I don't don't need to add something if I'm not adding uh, some value. And just to kick a guy when he's down despite a spectacular long-time track record seemed ridiculous to me. And I said this to one or two people, and sometimes these things travel around, and word gets to a friend of a friend of Bill, and we'll call it Friends of Bill. And the friend of Bill reaches out to me, and I know him through other parties, and he says, "Uh, so I hear you're not interested in writing about gross because you think it's not right to kick a guy with his track record when he's down. And my answer was, yeah. He goes, well, what would happen if I shared with you a couple of bullet points about his exit? And I'm like, I'm happy to listen. And so he proceeds to give me one or two thoughts. And I say, you know, he's due to write a monthly letter. And he left before he sent out his, they're called IOs, investment outlooks. He's been publishing these for decades. I think I might want to write a a monthly IO in the voice of Bill Gross. Now understand, I've been reading him and Paul McCulley and Muhammad Alarian and the rest of the PIMCO crew for a long time. Uh, sometimes what they write resonates with me. Sometimes it doesn't. But I knew it didn't take much to get into the head of Bill Gross. All I had to do is download a dozen IOs and read it on the train on the way home. 
And I did that. And after reading a few of these IOs, uh, you know, whenever they catch a forger of some great artwork, the guy says, oh, you know, I had to get this stroke down. Once I had that stroke, I can, anything I did looked like Van Gogh or Picasso or whatever it is. Once you get gross in your head, it's easy to write like him. It's easy to adapt his syncopations and his tones and his rhythms. And so that's exactly what I did. And I wrote this parody, you know, Gross's farewell letter. And I imagined, hey, I built one of the most fantastic firms in the world, uh, $2 trillion. Less people have put, um, raised $2 trillion than have hit 500 home runs in the in the uh, major leagues. And so I thought I would parody that perspective. And apparently I did too good a job because we got panicked phone calls. Hey, is this real? People are upset. Pimco is upset. This one's screaming. How did you guys get this letter? Uh, astonishingly, it was on Bloomberg View. People didn't realize it was a joke, or at least some people didn't realize it was a joke. I got a lot of emails. But because of that, and I'm told through the grapevine that the parody farewell letter from Bill Gross amused the real Bill Gross. And so he reached out at a certain point and said, I thought that was kind of interesting, as did other friends of Bill, other people who were still at PIMCO and not happy with his being deposed, uh, eventually led to my getting my hands on a copy of a uh, set of bonuses, a spreadsheet of all the bonuses that went out to PIMCO. And I wrote a column that talked about Gross's $290 million bonus in, in 2013, and then Alarians and everybody else is down the road. It was a billion five in PIMCO bonuses. And I get an email from Gross who doesn't say anything about the bonus, but says, you know, you guys keep misrepresenting my track record in, in total returns. It's much better than is claimed. And I, as well as the same is true for the closed end funds. And so I said, send me the data. I'll in, research it independently. And if it's correct, I'll, I'll, Pony up and admit it was correct. And it turns out that he was uh, more or less right, absolutely right about the closed end funds. They were spe- the performance was spectacular. According to Morningstar, they were one, two, three, four, and six in the universe of multi-sector fixed income funds. That's just, you know, just swept the, it's like winning Le Mans, one, two, and three. Your race team takes uh, all, all three pole positions and, and uh, amazing set of numbers. He was kind of right about total returns. It wasn't nearly as bad as people had depicted. He had been top 10%, top decile, and often top 1%. And in the years that followed, he had a bad year after 2011. He underperformed. 2012, he did really well, about flat 2013 relative to the benchmark. Underperformed a little bit, uh, about 75 basis points in 2014. Uh, 14 until until the end of September, but he essentially didn't put in the sort of numbers that leads to you know a founder getting deposed, and so I ran the story and but along the the course of having this conversation with him, said you know I would love to have you sit down and just you tell your story. I'll throw some questions at you, but you say what happened and and I know you don't trust people in the media and I know you. Uh, are fearful of filters and and spin, this is pretty unvarnished. You get to say whatever the heck you want to say. And so for two hours we spoke and he said whatever the heck he wanted to say. So this is the first hour of the interview. It's essentially him describing the creation of PIMCO 
what it was like, who his early mentors were, how things developed, what it was like running money in the inflationary periods of the 1970s. Uh, the 87 crash, he talked about a lot of really fascinating things. And I've now babbled for over five minutes, so let me stop now. And with no further ado, Bill Gross. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, we have a very special guest. You probably have heard his name once or twice if you're involved in the world of investing. Uh, His name is Bill Gross, perhaps the most famous bond investor in history. A quick background on who he is. Born in Middletown, Ohio, 1944. Moved to San Francisco 10 years later. Ended up going to Duke University uh, as a Duke scholar with a degree in psychology, which is quite fascinating. Hmm. And um, served... During the Vietnam War in the Navy, is that correct? Unfortunately, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for having me, Barry. Oh, my pleasure. 1944 was... sounds like a long time ago. Not not really. Not not too long. Just long enough to have developed some wisdom and experience, I would think. <laughs> oh, so, so let's, we're going to cover a lot of different material, a lot of, of um, areas. But I really want to start out with your background in the early days? Because you mentioned you've been doing this for 40 years. You have some history and some perspective. But what I find fascinating is that you essentially began as a CFA at Pacific Life, at an insurance company. How did you go from being an analyst Mm. to saying, I have an idea, let's set up a bond shop in 1971 or so? Well, it uh, was serendipity. Perhaps I, I I did private placements for Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. As a matter of fact, I made uh, two private placements to the eventual uh, two richest people in the world, uh, Sam Walton and Warren Buffett, uh, unbeknownst to me and Pacific Mutual at the time. But that's how I got started making five and $10 million loans. At the time, uh, downtown Los Angeles, uh, there was a budding development of uh, a bond trading. Uh, uh, Traders actually put their bonds, uh, physical bonds, in a box, Mm -hmm. uh, the ones that they wanted to trade. And uh, when they sold them, they would uh, ship them out by courier, and then they'd get some new bonds in uh, to the box uh, that they would be trading on a weekly basis. So it was very rudimentary and fundamental. And as a matter of fact, Pacific Mutual's bonds were held in a vault down below in a basement. And one of my first assignments was to Go down and clip coupons uh, to send those coupons in, get the interest, and uh, and earn Pacific Mutual some uh, some premiums. So you started an, as, as an analyst, literally clipping bond coupons. But how do you go from that to here's an idea? Let's set set up a standalone bond shop. Well, there was a setup, uh, and it uh, the setup was basically developing inflation in the early seventies after the the Vietnam War. Um, you know, it became apparent that bonds could go down in price as well as up. As a matter of fact, they've been going down for 10 or 15 years. And uh, th- there came a time when someone thought, and there were some early people, I was one of them, uh, that thought that perhaps some bonds down in those vaults should be sold uh, in order to preserve principal. And so uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm sure to some extent in New York and Chicago and Detroit, which were the hubs back then, you know, some early young individuals like myself, you know, began uh, trading and selling bonds primarily in order to uh, keep them from 
uh, going from 100 to 65 and 60. And some of those AT&T bonds in the 70s actually with the two and three-eighths coupons got as low as 33 cents on the dollar. Oh, my God. And what was the net? So if anybody bought that, what sort of uh, yield are they looking at? Practically 9% at the time? Well, yes. Uh, you know, at the peak in 79, 80, 81 with the Volcker Peak, um, uh, long treasuries were 14.5%, and so AT&T was probably trading at 16, 16.5%. And wow. um, they had, believe it or not, some Jenny Mae mortgages with a 20% coupon. So really fortuitous timing when you, you began right with the right call and at the right moment, more or less. Yeah, I think so. When I, I came out of UCLA with my master's degree, uh, having done a thesis on a book called Beat the Market by Ed Thorpe. I, oh, sure. I'd studied blackjack. Uh, you were a profe- <laughs> sort of professional blackjack player for a while, I was right? for three or four months, not a big hitter like Ed Thorpe, but uh, I proved that the system could work. And I went to UCLA, did my master's on uh, Beat the Market, which was a book on uh, hedging warrants and convertible bonds. Uh, that's how I got my job at Pacific Mutual. And um, so there was just the, the beginnings um, of option types of uh, theories and, and arbitrage uh, types of trades that, uh, you know, somebody like myself that had studied at UCLA, done a master's, you know, could could begin to take advantage of a trading atmosphere in which you could compare a value of one bond versus another. Back in those days, you know, mostly utility bonds, but there'd be a Detroit 5 and a Detroit 6, and the Detroit 6 would be trading at a at a yield of uh, 15 basis points less than the Detroit 5. And uh, so some of the early trades were easy trades in which you could just mm-hmm. uh, clip 10 or 15 basis points. But you didn't have the same technology we had today. It was much harder to do the compa- it's not like you just punch something into the terminal and say, all right, here's the expected returns for these similarly graded bonds. It was really interesting and really different. Um, the, the, the first time I saw a Tellerate machine was uh, in 1975. I came back to New York to do a speech and uh, uh, at the Hilton. They had this fabulous machine that showed uh, ongoing prices for treasuries. I, I said, we've got to get one of those and uh, barely could convince my uh, boss at the time uh, in terms of private placements to, to do one. But yeah, you know, very few uh, screens and very little technology. Everything was done by phone, which was interesting wow. because if, if uh, although don't, I don't have a great phone voice, I have a great trader demeanor on the phone and I can um, get the best price frequently or could in my early days. And so the ability to deal by uh phone back and forth was uh, much different, I think, than it is today with electronic trading. So you had to sell your bosses on the idea of a a, a Tellerate machine. How did you sell them on the idea of, let's spin out a fixed income division, and this way we can attract other clients and other capital, and hey, you own most of it anyway, so what do you care? There was a chairman of the board, Walter Gherkin. He's still alive. Uh, He's five miles away from Newport Beach, Mm -hmm. up in the hills. Uh, I I revere him uh, because of his- Bill Gherkin. Walter Gherkin. Walter Gherkin. Uh, came from Northwestern Mutual, came out to uh, Pacific Mutual about the same time I came to Pacific Mutual. But he had this attitude, this aggressive attitude that uh, um, was expressed, I think, in our building in Newport Beach. They moved a year later from downtown L.A. to Newport Beach with this fabulous new building and expressed an attitude towards the future. Um 
we, and when I say we, uh, Jim Muzzy, who is the marketing person, and Bill Podlick, who is the the business person, we uh, three, the we three kings of um, not Orient are, but uh, Newport Beach, uh, got together and said, hey, um, you know, that we've got the potential here for a business. And we walked into the chairman's office, uh, scared as uh, uh, baby ducks, and um, with, with legs shaking said, uh, we'd like to start a company called Pacific Investment Management, and we'd like a piece of the action. Um, he didn't kick us out. He thought about it. Uh, he said it sounds like a good idea, even though uh, within 12 months we were making more than he was. And, <laughs> and on and on and on it, uh, it went. We, we started with our first client, uh, Southern California Edison, which, to be fair, was a local uh, board-related uh, um, uh, win, so mm-hmm. to speak. We uh, got a second client, AT&T, which was the... Uh, the beginning of it all, because at the time AT and T was the biggest of the big, and sure. they uh, chose us, uh, the young kids. We were still in our twenties uh, as the, their first West Coast um, manager. It, at the time, Barry, uh, there was this legislation called ERISA, sure. in, in which uh, pension funds were being uh, nudged, forced, you know, basically to open. Uh, their choices for managers. Typically, they'd been Chicago banks, Detroit banks, New York banks, but now they had to choose amongst a different set. And so PIMCO became their uh, first West Coast uh, independent investment manager. And boy, once you get AT&T, you're, you're on and up. So you start out, you garner a few clients. Did you have any clue when you first launched the shop what the future held? Or did you think, Hey, we can make a nice living doing this. No, we thought we could. I I thought um, unbelievably, and I I told my parents uh, when they came down to Mission Viejo, which is about twenty miles south of uh, New, Newport Beach. First house was a thirty one thousand dollar house, um, so we weren't making much. Uh, right. Um, but I I told my parents about. The, the bond business. They didn't know what a bond was, but I told them that I was going to be the best bond manager in the world. Um, they, at age 20-something. At age 28. They they looked at me uh, quizzically, um, weren't quite sure uh, whether I'd uh, gone off the deep end, but uh, in any case, that was my goal. And um, I, I think by the time my mom passed in 2002 that I was um, pretty well in that direction. That that's quite fascinating. Um, initially, you guys began with twelve million dollars. Is that an urban legend or is that accurate? No, that it is twelve million. So the early days is the three of you. When did you start adding employees at, at a rapid clip? I mean, it, was it was it a small three man shop for a while, or how soon were you adding analysts, traders, bodies, etc.? Yeah, it took three or four years, and and uh, we were still in a little wing of the uh, Pacific Mutual building. Yeah, the business expanded from 10, 15, 20 people. We developed the marketing staff. Uh, we developed, obviously, accounting and internal staffs, and we developed, importantly, uh, what we call account management, where the account management would connect with clients and where the portfolio managers, Gross and uh, now Chris Dianellis, um would be able to stay at home and manage money as opposed to travel all around and talk to clients. So it, it, in the early 80s, we were a, 
a company of uh, 40, 50 people. Uh, we were close to a billion dollars. Our, our th- theoretical boss, uh, Thompson, uh, who was head of the investment division in Pacific Mutual, promised the company a, a trip to Hawaii if we could ever reach a billion dollars in assets. And uh, when we finally did, he found a way to uh, to put off or to renege on the promise. We, we never got to Hawaii. <laughs> on Twitter, I did hashtag Ask Bill Gross. Hey, Bill, why bonds instead of equities? I thought that was kind of an interesting... I, I don't think hmm. I've ever heard you, for, anyone ask you that question For before. me? Yes. Oh, uh, but because I couldn't get a job in the stock area. Really? Yeah. yeah no, I came out of UCLA. I, I thought it was pretty smart, but nobody else did. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pacific Life gave me a job, like I say, clipping those coupons and doing private placements for prospective people like uh, Walton and Buffett. And uh yeah, they. they Is, by the way, are those the sort of names they give to? Hey, those guys are nobody. Give it to the kid. Is that the, how that works? I, it, you know, it's it, it's sort of like at the, um, you know, at the meat counter at the grocery store. Take a number and just like uh, that, and just like it popped up. And and Sam Walton, by the way, was not. Like I say, he had two stores. I traveled to Bentonville. He picked me up in his uh, pickup truck with his two sons and his dog and uh, took me around to the stores, and uh, that was uh, Walmart at the time. And Two stores. Two stores. And when um, when Buffett came in, he came in with Charlie Munger, and they were much younger people, and they had this dilapidated company called Berkshire Hathaway. It, uh, <laughs> it consisted of C's Candy, Blue Chip Stamps, and this uh, industrial complex in the east that they were going to— um, you know, closed down anyway, but they wanted uh, five million dollars, and uh, I, I can't recall why I thought it was a good investment. But obviously, Buffett and Munger impressed me, and um, they they got uh, they got ten million bucks. Not not that uh, Pacific Investment or Pacific Life was the the beginning for them, because uh, but it it helped them on their way. You, you still in touch with either of them at all over oh, the years? Sure. Yeah, Warren and I uh, talk a lot and did talk considerably during the crisis, uh, the Lehman crisis in 2008 and 2009, putting together plans and so on. Of course, Sam Walton is dead, but uh, um, yeah, for a while there, it was interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what else helped form your views on investing. Do you did you have any early mentors? No, a business mentor, uh, Walter Gerken, certainly because he he had the uh, foresight to give us a start. But uh, from the standpoint of investing, um, certainly Ed Thorpe, and it, it sounds strange why a book called Beat the Dealer could serve as that uh, initial example, but but it did. It taught me the um, the principle of gambler's ruin, basically the fact that even if the odds are in your favor, and, and you can do that in blackjack by counting the cards, and uh, at some point in time, you know, instead of the house uh, being favored 52-48, uh, the client can be favored uh, 53-47, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it taught me at the time that even when uh, odds are in your favor, you can only bet a small portion of your principal because you have streaks of bad luck and uh, right. and you can experience what they call gambler's ruin. So it's the same thing in investing. You know, Even with a very significant, confident bet, uh, you don't want to put all your chips on the table. You want to hold it back. And uh, the theory of gambler's ruin was that you needed at least 50 times your 
your maximum bet at any time, no matter what your confidence level. And so that uh, was a 2% uh, you know, type of maximum bet. It, uh, it's held pretty well in terms of corporate credits and sovereign credits. And uh, it, it gave me a sense of risk-taking and uh, when to take risk, when not to take risk, and how much to take. Uh, it was perfect for uh, a Markowitz uh, diversified um, genre of uh, portfolio management that was budding in the 70s and so, the so 80s. So gambler's ruin leads to modern portfolio theory, which leads to broadly diversified holdings, even with a high degree of confidence. Yeah. I would say his book, too, on uh, – uh, he wrote a book called Beat the Market. Uh, I mentioned this before about convertible bonds and uh, – and um, warrants and and uh, the hedging aspects of it. I, I developed a very crude computer program about it. In any case, it gave me a sense that uh, markets weren't perfect. Uh, that uh, they could, not fully efficient. Is not that what fully we're going to say? Efficient, yes. And, uh, that was my last class at UCLA, uh, the efficient market theory. And uh, uh, yours truly, Bill Gross, exited uh, efficient uh, market theory with a C minus, uh, which in grad school basically means you flunked it. What other books um, or investors influenced you besides uh, Ed Thorpe? Well, um, you know, several. There, there's a there's a book by Jim Grant, and he's written quite a few. Uh, one that uh, I go back to is the, if only because of the title, uh, "The Trouble with Prosperity." How could there be trouble with prosperity? Uh, it came, I guess, from the same uh, theory, although Grant wouldn't uh, claim it. A, 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 Not a kinship a, a, with Minsky at all? No. And you, you, you got right there. Yeah, he wouldn't claim a, a kinship with Minsky, but it is the same thing. Uh, Minsky saying that stability leads to instability is about the same thing as saying there's a trouble with prosperity. And um, and so both of those, I, I, I got into Minsky in the early, 80, uh, early 21st century, uh, thanks to Paul McCulley. I was going to say, Paul, uh, your colleague... I go fishing with him every summer up in in Maine, and he's the first person I want to say about eight or ten years ago who first introduced me to Hyman Minsky. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, and this was in uh, two thousand and two and three before the the crisis. But uh, but he said, "Hey, here's uh, you know here's this guy called Minsky," and uh, of course you know he wrote some very technical and lengthy. Uh, tomes, I, I guess, uh, and you had to work through them uh, with difficulty, but the essence of it was the stability leads to instability, and the combination of the uh, the classical Keynesian, um, uh, neoclassical, if you will, uh, you know, concept of the economy in terms of an outside influence uh, that ultimately would re-equilibrate. Uh, lead to a re-equilibrium, I guess, uh, as opposed to Minsky, who said, hey, no, the uh, the problem isn't uh, the fact that the economy itself and the financial economy are connected. And when uh, one moves to excess, then uh, it, it comes from the inside as opposed to to the outside. And that was a brilliant observation because at PIMCO, we began looking in the early uh, 21st century for uh, problems in terms of uh, debt creation and leverage in the housing market. And we we sent our own people, Barry. Um, uh, in, we took 10 credit analysts uh, in 2005, uh, in 2005 and uh, turned them into real estate, uh, huh. uh, phony real estate shoppers. We sent them to Phoenix and uh, to Vegas and Miami and Cincinnati and, and pretended to buy a house to see exactly what was going on from the inside uh, because of Minsky and because of this uh, you know, developing bubble in housing. So we had it pretty well down, and uh, thanks to Paul McCulley um, and, and, like I say, thanks to Minsky and Jim Grant, all which uh, you know, 
gave me and gave us this commonsensical uh, uh, lesson uh, that uh, that that simply by keeping inflation low at two uh, percent does not necessarily mean that the financial system uh, remains totally stable forever. It doesn't. It creates its own problems, and we all know what happened. What do you think the typical investor does wrong from a psychological perspective? Is it just simply giving in to fear and greed, or is it more nuanced than that? I think it's you know primarily that, Barry, uh, no, although it's more nuanced. But, but I, I can see it myself. Um, you, you know, these days and in recent days— um, you know, I, I can recognize where I, I turn right when I should have turned left and turn left when I should turn right. Uh, I'm a human being. I get afraid. I'm a human being. I get greedy when things are going uh, the right way. Hopefully all of this tempered by uh, the gambler's ruin rules of Ed Thorpe. But yeah, I, I think the bane of all investors is um, is not doing what uh, what Rothschild said is, uh, you know, buying when there's blood in the streets. Hard to buy when there's blood in the streets. And it's hard to sell uh, when the trumpets are, are sounding. So the ability to temper that, I, I think, for all investors, not just individuals, is the ultimate key. And to know that things you know, simply can't continue forever. Now, I get a principle in my book called The Alarm Clock Principle, and uh, it it basically says that everybody has an individual alarm clock in terms of when they get up uh, relative to the markets, uh, meaning, so say people get up at six uh, uh, on average. Uh, In the investment world, very few people get up at six, meaning at the right time. A lot of them get up way too early at uh, one in the morning or Two in the morning. In other words, they sound the clarion call, the Armageddon uh, warning, far too early, and and by the time it gets to be six o'clock, uh, they're out of business or uh, out of money, or they've uh, kept their money in cash for so long that uh, the the pack has distanced them by uh, by miles. And we yet- certainly have seen that on the equity side, from '09 to 2015, <clears throat> people have been calling for the end of the bull market for I don't know. Six months after the bottom, right? Um, and, and and that can be done. And yours truly uh, has done that. I've got I've gotten up in many cases at uh, one and two o'clock. Uh, but on the other side, investors can get up far too late at uh, ten or eleven. We're more familiar with that because that tends to connote either a teenager or laziness or whatever. Uh, but it uh, basically means you've missed the boat. And by the time you get into the market, the market's over. It's high noon, so to speak. Anyway, I, you know, I, I think an individual investor has to know um, uh, through experience and through analysis and thinking uh, when they get up in the morning. And obviously, the perfect time to get up is 5.45 or 6 o'clock. You, you won't miss a thing. You'd be right on the money. Uh, but uh, we all have dispositions, predispositions, like you mentioned. And uh, my individual alarm clock is, uh, I think, around 4.30. It's a little bit early, uh, but not too bad. Um, and so knowing that it's uh, 4.30, I try and blend that into uh, to what I do f- uh, on the investment side from the standpoint of timing markets. and So yeah, you it, stay longer than your gut wants you to. Is that the way you're describing it? You no, know, my, my gut wants me to get in there at 4.30, but uh, but my brain tells me it's really 6. Uh, and, and so it's just like a, 
It's just like a, a batter, I guess, at the plate. Um, uh, you know, who's seen a lot of fastballs, and and now it is getting a curveball, and a curveball comes in at ten miles an hour less. And so the key for hitting a curveball um, is to wait, 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 boom. Uh, and and so the my key, uh, you know, seeing something about to happen at four thirty is to wait for an hour and a half, and then, you know take a swing and hopefully get a hit. So um, every investor, I think, has to know who they are from that standpoint because we're all different. Um, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. And my guest today, one Bill Gross, formerly of Pacific Life and PIMCO, now with Janice. So I began my career on a trading desk. And uh, I've one of the things that have always stayed with me from the head trader at the time, a guy named Bill, used to say to me, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. And throughout your career, you've had a lot of great calls, but you've had some calls that have been wrong, which you subsequently reverse fairly quickly. So let's talk a little bit about 2011, where I think a lot of people have made a big deal about that. You said, hey, we're going to have a, a problem. But you reversed that trade fairly quickly, didn't you? You yeah, took treasuries off in 2011 thinking... Uh, we're going to see higher inflation, higher interest rates, bigger deficit. But you didn't marry that position at all. No, you, you can't get married to a position. And, uh, you know, like you're suggesting, and I just suggested with the alarm clock, uh, you know, that the, the timing's critical as to when to get in and when to get out. But being married to a position, uh, yeah, is is death for an investor. You can't fall in love with your certificates. Um some of them are very pretty, by the way, and, and you, right. you can fall in love with them. Spoken then, like a stamp collector. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in, in 2011, um, yeah, it was it was the wrong call in terms of treasury, sort of a, a famous uh, year, I guess, for Pimco. But uh, you know, like you're suggesting, uh, that was reversed later in the year, and in 2012, actually by March of 2012. Everything that had been uh, lost from an alpha standpoint, about 350 basis points, as I remember, gained back in a period of three or four months. And, and 2012 went on to to have a 600 basis point alpha year versus the minus 350, as I remember, in 2011. You were up over 10% yeah. in total return. I think the benchmark was 3.7, 3.8, something like that. Yeah. So you had made that up. And at the same time, not only – could you and I – let me a little background for listeners – so you and I had been emailing about this. Paul Krugman famously chastised you after you left PIMCO saying, PIMCO and Gross never recovered from 2011. And you said, hey, this isn't true. Take a look at it. And so I did. I went back. I looked at the data. Not only did total return regain all the outflows and then some the following year, two years later, PIMCO had gone from one25 to $2 trillion. So it was fairly clear this was far from, quote, haunting PIMCO. It was a trade that didn't work out. You reversed it. And it certainly didn't stop the asset gathering process over the next couple of years, nor did it impact negatively um, the performance the following year. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a bad rap. And I don't, I don't know what Krugman's doing uh, weighing in on, uh, uh, you know, not buying Treasuries and, and uh, being unpatriotic, which was the I, basis I think it's of an inflation debate from his perspective as an economist, yeah. not a investing debate. But you were certainly an available fall guy to use as an example. Look, he got the inflation call wrong, 
And then all sorts of bad things happen, or that was the argument. You know, did you just shake that off at the time? Did you think that would really be a significant issue on a long and storied track record? Because there are a number no, of people. I, I'd been through so many of those um, mistakes. Um, it's the nature and, of trading. Yeah, it's the nature of trading. Um, and almost every time, like my wife says, uh, you know, uh, you'll make it up. Uh, <laughs> and and we always did. And and um, so it didn't bother me. It seemed to bother a lot of people under the impression, I guess, that uh, Dick Gross and Pimco were infallible. But because, and and, it, and it's fair to say, we, we came through the, the crisis, the Lehman crisis, with shining colors because of what I talked about with Minsky and McCulley and uh, knowing about the housing market. We uh you know, we were the 99th percentile stars in 08 and 09, and that was really the basis for the, the total return fund going to $295 billion at, it, at its peak, the confidence that we could protect principal. And then, like I say, uh, with a mild mistake in 2011, make it grow in 2010 and 2012. And to me, uh, it was a sleepless uh you know, period of months, uh, as always, but uh, never one without the confidence that we'd get it back. I have to ask you one question. You mentioned 290, almost $300 billion. Did the size of total returns have a outsized impact on your ability to maneuver? Did it just get to be too big at that point? In retrospect, uh, you know, I, I would have to say yes. That's a lot of money. You know, not that the markets uh, haven't grown with us or didn't grow with PIMCO, you know, through the years. That was always our claim to clients that, hey, uh, we're still only one and a half percent of the market, et cetera, et cetera. The market uh, gets bigger. You know, it's fair to say in the last uh, few years that uh, the street uh, would always know uh, what PIMCO was doing. We would always know in the early years what the state of California was doing. They were the big uh, horse and the big wheel back then. And, you know, you'd know within five or 10 minutes via the brokerage wires and the phones that the state was in or the state was out. And so it became the same thing with PIMCO. Any trade that we did obviously had to be an enormous size relative to the rest of the market. And uh, we affected markets and we paid a price for that in terms of uh, in and outs and uh, ultimately in terms of the street uh, being well-informed and in some cases working against us. Any plans on putting a cap at uh, the unconstrained fund at Janus? Well, not yet. We're only at $2 billion. And and so, uh, you know, that to me, is um, maybe not a perfect size. I'd like to get a little bit bigger, but it's certainly size where uh, you can move and you're flexible, and uh, you don't have the problems of the street. Uh, you know, wondering what Janus is going to do because two billion doesn't move markets like two hundred ninety-five billion did. Nobody's front running you. No one's trading against you. It's not the right. same uh, situation. So let's talk a little bit about the Lehman situation, the financial crisis. So. You're running a, a firm that has, at the time, I want to say 07, total return was about 160, 180 billion dollars. Is that about right? Okay, I'll go with it. Um, and Pimco was just under a trillion dollars. Yeah. So now you're sitting on this huge pile of other people's capital that you're managing on their behalf, and suddenly the world tumbles into the abyss. What is that like? It was sheer panic, uh, not just from the standpoint of the, of the company, but personally, um, 
It's a well-told story that uh, Muhammad El-Aryan and, and Bill Gross uh, both uh, on the same day independently called their wives uh, and told them to take all the money they had in the bank out of the bank. Um, in cash. In cash. Um, of course, I think there was a $10,000 limit, but we said, get it out of there. Um, so that tells you uh, personally what was going on and institutionally um, – you know, we were we were full time. We were sleeping in the garage, uh, sleeping in cars. Uh, you know, many of us never left the the building. Uh, it was good to have Muhammad uh, with us at the time uh, because he had more expertise than I had in terms of the uh, the technical dealings in, in terms of money markets and brokers and repo and collateral. Um, you know, I was a I was a trader and a portfolio manager. Um, so Muhammad uh, really helped us uh, back then in terms of preserving what we had. We we had money invested in Lehman Brothers. We had money invested in um, you know uh, unsettled positions with Lehman Brothers, and there were some uh, you know minute to minute maneuvering, yelling, screaming. Uh, you mean you them know, as a counterparty, as not a counterparty. actually owning Lehman Brothers? Well, paper. we own Lehman Brothers paper too. Oh, uh, really? Unfortunately, yeah. And and um, everybody did. More yeah, or less. And, and we came out of it uh, very very well in in, in terms of. Uh, the positions that we own that that countered our layman positions. I mean, we own, uh, you know, billions and hundreds of billions of uh, euro dollar futures that were uh, screaming higher in price because the Fed was uh, dropping interest rates or about to drop interest rates to zero. And so, you know, we had some insurance against the layman positions, but no, we weren't smart enough to completely avoid uh, the situation. And, and as you know, during Lehman, it was not just Lehman, but, uh, you know, Goldman and Merrill and uh, Morgan Stanley, they were all next, so to speak. And so everything was sinking like a rock. And um, everyone was trying to preserve their own uh, collateral, their own cash. And uh, it was really a dogfight, a food fight, uh, not just between uh, um, you know, private institutions in Lehman uh, and the street in Lehman, but between each other, everybody was looking out for their own little skinny. You were at the time a huge holder of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the, the GSEs. That was a trade that could have turned out to be disastrous. It actually turned out to be a big moneymaker for you. D describe the thinking behind that. Well, the thinking was that they were money good. I, I know the Chinese at the time were asking questions of Paulson and, and so on, and legitimate questions as to whether they were money good. And um, Big you, holders you, of treasuries and Fannie and Freddie, and the thinking might have been something along the lines of, hey, if you guys aren't going to back the GSEs, why should we think you're going to back your own treasuries? And that that certainly was the case, uh, and, and that was the reason why we thought that they would back the the GSEs. And and you know there was a I think a five billion dollar uh, you know line of credit to the GSEs uh, technically in a prospectus, but that was nothing relative to their size. Ultimately, it was a a um, position of faith that uh, that the GSEs, the agencies, and the U.S. Treasury were one and the same. Obviously, they're not one and the same, but one and the same in terms of protection of principle and interest. And so that was the bet, and it was a big bet. And and others were moving in the other direction because, like I said, um, you know, no one was uh, deemed safe other than the 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 U.S. Treasury per se, and uh, you know it's just a question of of where to where to put your money. We 
we decided that the agencies were okay, and certainly the agency mortgages, which was the key, because you know, even if the agencies failed, you, you theoretically and in reality had collateral uh, behind your loan that ultimately could be foreclosed on. Now, as we know through experience, mm-hmm. the foreclosure ultimately resulted in uh, 40 and 30 and 20 cents on the dollar in some cases, so it, it wasn't perfect. But the the combination of this, you know, our confidence in money goodness of the agencies and the collateral made it an attractive risk-reward situation. So now let's talk about, you've been a pretty, I don't want to say critic, but you've been a commentator and observer of, of the markets and of the Fed. So let's ask the big question. What is the impact of ZERP and zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing? How has this impacted the markets? What does this mean to risk assets, and, and how do you think this is going to impact this current generation of uh, portfolio managers? And how has it affected the real economy? Because I think it's all connected, uh, and, and most observers don't connect it uh, to the r- real economy. But certainly it's affected financial markets, uh, you know, w- with interest rates where they are, and uh, we're not exactly sure because it's a counterfactual, et cetera, where they would be. If we hadn't had QE in the in the United States, or if, if the BOJ didn't uh, have QE, and if uh, you know, the ECB doesn't do QE, um, you know, all very uncertain. But yeah, you know, many studies by the Fed itself, uh, not that they can be uh, trusted verbatim uh, in in terms of uh, you, you know the, the facts, uh, so to speak. But you know, they suggest uh, you know impact of maybe seventy five to one hundred basis points on ten uh, year. Treasuries, and we know the impact in terms of money market rates. Just so, in other words, instead of two percent, we'd have three percent. We'd have three percent. That that seems kind of low. Although when we look around the rest of the world, everybody else's rates, at least the major com- countries, much lower than than us here in the U.S. Right. Um, well, that's because the U.S. at the moment has a stronger economy and the potential for um, some inflation as opposed to, to negative inflation. So, you know, we have that uh, that spread and the expectation that we'll remain a, a, a dominant leader in, in terms of the global recovery. Um, you know, so, so QE's definitely had an impact on on bonds, on money market rates, on and on stock prices too. Uh, you know that's the hard one. Where would a PE be if the ten-year was at three instead of two, and if money market rates were at two uh, percent uh, instead of zero? Um, you know, always hard to answer. But there's no doubt uh, that the tripling of the stock market since the, the the bottom has been significantly affected by QE. Money has gone out uh, from uh, the, the core, so to speak, from the banks in terms of reserves, and not entirely so, but out from the banks in terms of reserves into the outer reaches of uh, asset markets, and that would include you know, uh, bonds and long-term bonds and corporate bonds and then stocks and equities and real estate. And so the asset markets have been fertilized undoubtedly. Uh, fertilized, uh, that's a good word. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the question to me becomes... You know, the effect on the real economy, um, again, a counterfactual with the real economy, be it 3% uh, now, uh, if we hadn't done quantitative easing, probably not, because there is, in my opinion, a wealth effect that uh, trickles down very slowly, but trickles down to, from wealthy investors in, into the economy. And so the real economy is better, but I, I would make this point, and uh, I, I think um, others such as, uh, you know, 
uh, Fisher in Dallas and several others, you know, are, have, have quietly tried to make the point that uh, interest rates should be higher and not because of the inflationary menace, but because you know, it affects the the returns, the real returns on investment in, in the real economy. Look at it this way. If a long-term 30-year Treasury bond was at uh, – it, it, you know, in, instead of uh, you know below three percent, was it one uh, percent? Uh, bond investors would know that uh, you know the the duration uh, would be uh, you know probably forty years, and that the risk return would be inappropriate, and so they, they wouldn't invest in a thirty-year bond at a one percent level. It's the same thing in the real economy. You know, CEOs and and uh, you know corporate leaders look at the return on investment and the return on equity, and they've come down, down, down. You know, uh, because proportionately, uh, the um, the financial market leads uh, those types of returns. And secondly, you know, because of structural influences that uh, Larry Summers has mentioned in in recent months, uh, aggregate demand uh, dearth. Uh, on a global basis, et cetera, I could go on. But in any case, the return on investment is so sufficiently low, let's call it 4 or 5%, as opposed to 6 7 or 8%. That and, and, and remember, return on investment is a long-term return on investment. In many cases, we're talking about a building here that will be up there for 30, 40, 50 years. So it's just sort of like a long-term bond. Corporate leaders in the uh, real economy are reluctant to make an investment in the real economy because the returns are too low and the risk is too great from a durational standpoint and from a lack of perceived aggregate demand. And so having gone so low in terms of interest rates, to my way of thinking, and I think to Fisher at Dallas uh, and others, was was probably the critical mistake. They should have stopped at one or two. They should have left something for savers. It wouldn't have made much difference if, if Fed funds were at 1% instead of 25 basis points. Leave something for savers. Leave something for investing in the real economy so that, uh, you know, there would be an impetus and a, the potential to, um, to have an attractive rate of return. There isn't that today. And so, um, you know, central banks are in this conundrum of knowing what will happen when they raise rates, in other words, the potential for a, another moment, like in 2013, a taper tantrum, uh, but yet at the same time recognizing that uh, you know 0% interest rates distort capitalism to a significant degree, and that's my main point. 0% interest rates distort capitalism. So a couple of examples, stock buybacks instead of capital investing, Increased dividends instead of hiring? Is that the sort of thing you're alluding to? Exactly. Uh, and that's not the fault of corporation. If they can buy their stock at a uh, at a 16 PE and a perceived uh, return of uh, 6 or 7%, uh, you know, with relative certainty and with the uh, the certainty that earnings per share will go up because of it uh, in their tenure while they're getting a bonus, then, you know, who, who's to fault that? But, That's just uh, math, in other words. Th- that is just math. And and the same thing with dividends. But, uh, but dividends and uh, stock buybacks do not make for investment in the real economy. And the it's fact is, is that, that the net savings rate in the United States, the net savings rate in most countries, some have avoided this, like Mexico, but the net savings rate in the United States is is very close to zero. It dipped below zero, you know, during the uh, Lehman recession, the Great Recession. It's uh, crawled above zero, uh, you know, in the last year or two. But typically, it hung out 
around 5 to 10% in terms of net investment, and that's after corporate depreciation um, and netting out the uh, the entire ball of wax. And, and so it basically means we're not investing in our economy. We're eating our seed corn uh, because of this distortion uh, in the financial markets where zero interest rates make financial assets attractive but not real assets. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. 